Welcome to Inside the Treehouse, a conversation with world-class K-12 education experts who will talk about their personal journey and all things education. I'm Jeff Jones, and our podcast is brought to you by Solution Tree, the home of some of the greatest tested and proven solutions to problems we face daily in K-12 education. This is a bonus episode of the podcast Inside the Treehouse. This episode is the audio recording of a recent Facebook Live interview with Mike Mattis and Anthony Muhammad, in which they discuss revisiting professional learning communities at work, second edition. Mike and Anthony share ideas from the book, including the ways PLC at Work has grown and branched out over the last two decades since Rick and Bob started PLC at Work. Mike and Anthony will also discuss how their work branched out from this resource to include RTI at Work and Transforming School Culture. This book, Revisiting PLC at Work, second edition, can be purchased at SolutionTree.com. I hope you enjoy this special episode. Tonight, I am joined by authors and experts, Mike Matos and Anthony Muhammad. Hi, Mike and Anthony. Hey, Jesse. Jesse. Thanks for joining me tonight. Um, We're going to have a lively discussion. I have lots of interview questions. Um, Before we get started, I like to allow the audience the chance to get to know you and your background. And one of the things we're most proud of is that all Solution Tree authors and associates are former practitioners in the classroom and administration in the district. So Anthony, could we start with you and give us a background, uh, a a look into your background as a practitioner? Absolutely. Um, I think you best learn how to serve the profession by serving in the profession. Uh, So I spent eight years as a middle school uh, uh, teacher. Uh, Mike and I have that in common. I was a seventh grade social studies teacher at a school that no longer exists anymore. It's been closed. I don't think they did it because of me, but uh, it, it, it's, it's no longer open. And I spent two years as an assistant principal and nine years as a principal. And since leaving as a practitioner, I spent my the rest of my career, which has really been fun, which has brought us to today, uh, really uh, being an advocate for the PLC process and writing and, and, and um, doing some action research around school culture. So practitioner, uh, 19 years, eight as a teacher, 11 as an administrator, and the lat- latter part of my career as a consultant. Thanks, Anthony. Uh, Mike, could you also share a little bit of your background as a practitioner? Gladly. Um, as as Anthony mentioned, I, I proudly say I was a, a, a fellow uh, secondary and specifically middle school teacher. In fact, Anthony and I both taught social studies. I taught seventh and, and eighth. Taught a little bit of high school too, and proudly say the biggest chunk of my career as was as, as as a classroom teacher. Never thought I'd leave the classroom, and actually left it just for a family pay raise. I'm married to a fellow teacher. At some point, you can't take on one more extra job beyond coaching activities, director, department chair. So, so I spent two years as a uh, secondary assistant principal, and then and then almost a decade as a site principal. And I can I know I speak for Anthony and I both um, when. It, when it comes to the concept of PLCs, I didn't know what PLCs were when I was a classroom teacher. I think I intuitively knew that we'd get better results by working with peers, but there was never a formal structure of, of, of collaboration beyond traditional department meetings or grade level meetings. But it was when I was a principal, a first year principal, that I had a chance to hear Rick DeFore talk for the first time. I think Anthony and I both say proudly that, that, that we've been blessed to not only learn from Rick DeFore, Bob Aker, Becky DeFore, but both of us consider Rick dear, a dear friend and a mentor to us both, that, that, that we got results on site. And that's how kind of Rick learned about Anthony and I. But then Rick took a very vested interest in, 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 both, the, in both of us as, and, and mentored us over years of time when it comes to not just the PLC process, but also thinking about uh, continuous improvement when it comes to helping schools get better results. Absolutely. All right. So um, what we're going to do here is go through some interview questions and I'm kind of focusing on the upcoming new book, Revisiting Professional Learning Communities at Work, second edition. It's out on April 2nd. Uh, This book was released. the, The second edition was released 12 years after the first edition which came out 10 years 
after professional learning communities at work, the book from uh, Rick and Becky and Bob Aker was released. So um, there's a long legacy. I wondered if we could start by you guys talking a little bit about how you felt about the legacy of the DeFores and you kind of taking the lead on this new book. Sure. Um, I was introduced to the PLC process through being forced by a former superintendent to attend a PLC Institute in Illinois uh, at Adelaide Stevenson. And I was a very reluctant participant. Um, the conference changed how I viewed education. I was talking about paradigm shift. It was a total paradigm shift. And in the Solution Tree bookstore, there were very few books because Solution Tree hadn't, hadn't published very many books yet. But the one that stood out was a little beige book with some birds flying off of it uh, called PLC at Work. And the first edition published in 1998. And I, I, I took that book and I, I must have read it two or three times before school started. I actually, I, you could have said I consumed it, like literally. Um, it was just a, an eye opener. And then to have the opportunity to implement it. And then, as Mike said, be mentored by Rick um, and Becky and, and, and Bob in that process. And then when the second book was released in 2008, uh, to see all of the growth, because we had brought a lot of new people on. I mean, whenever something is a seminal work and other people get a chance to actually engage with it and, and, and add, we call that PLC at work book like the, the tree trunk. It's, it's, it's the tree. And there's a lot of branches that came from that tree. Uh, Mike's and, and Austin's work around RTI at work, my work on school culture. Um, others, uh, Chris Jackasick and, and Kim Bailey with, with uh, assessment and, and Cassie Erkins. And it just, the tree just kept growing. So to see its growth in 2008, it had become almost like an encyclopedia by 2008. Uh, the, the original book had just expanded so much. And then we all are, know about, uh, most of us know, and some who don't know, uh, that Rick passed away uh, in 2017, and then Becky passed away shortly thereafter, leaving a void uh, with Dr. Bob Baker carrying the load um, really by himself. Mike had already joined the, 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 the group, uh, the, 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 the wise folks, and I was brought on um, and mentored by Rick to really, uh, you know, stand in the gap for him as he battled with lung cancer and to be able to collaborate with Mike, who's been a dear colleague for years to um, be able to, to learn under the wisdom of Dr. Bob Baker and to be trusted with the legacy of Rick and Becky DeFore. I never would have dreamed back in 2001 that I would be a part of publishing the third edition of the original classic. So it's really surreal for me um, from being resistant to being a fan, to being a, a colleague and a, and a mentee, to now being trusted to lead over 150 associates um, as uh, Bob, Mike, and I are trusted to be the intellectual leaders of this process is something I could have never dreamed of as I sat in the back of Adelaide Stevenson High School back in 2001. So it's just surreal for me. To add one more piece, I know that my feelings personally, I, I couldn't say it better than Anthony did. It is truly one of the highest honors in my entire both personal and professional life to be asked to be a co-author on this third edition, not just because the work is so powerful and transformed the way I think as an educator, but, you know, Rick, Becky, Bob, uh, dear, dear friends, salt of the earth. If, if you thought that their educational advice was, was powerful as people, they're, they're even finer people than they are educators. Um, so to be asked to be part of that legacy is, is, is humbling. I think an important element of this third book, too, and it's captured in the earlier editions, too, is this. One of the essential characteristics of the PLC work process is continuous improvement. It's about continuous learning of adults so we can better serve kids. If the mission of a PLC is to ensure all of our kids learn at high levels, unless you can look at your building or district right now and say, every kid is learning at the highest levels. They couldn't learn any more than how much that they're learning. Then there's room to improve. If there's room to improve, we look at what we can do better. We don't blame the kids on why they aren't learning. We look internally. Well, what I'm proud of is Rick and Becky and Bob, 
not only, you know, and, and, and Rick and Bob first, and then Becky adding that, that third piece in the later books, they practiced what they preached. So the PLC process was born out of both research and also field study. It's taking a look at what a preponderance of evidence says is best practice, but then how do you implement in real life settings? And the incubator of that original book that Rick and Bob had, uh, wrote was, was really through the work at, at Adelaide Stephen High School. So the faculty at that school deserve a bunch of, of credit, but they were applying research in a real life setting and gathering evidence of what's working and what's not. So, so if we believe that we serve kids better by continuous learning, then when that first bit wrote, when that first book was written in 1998, that represented what Rick and Bob felt was best practice at that time. But can we say we've learned more since then? We as a profession collectively, and where we used to have one model school out there that kind of could prove better results, we have hundreds of PLC model schools and many associates who love those schools on Facebook Live right now with us. And so we've stopped purposely, Rick and Becky and Bob stopped purposely about a decade after the first book to say, what have we learned since then? Because we've continued to learn. Some of those things have validated the original assumptions and, and, and we stand by them more than ever, that the process is valid, validated work. But we've gained great, greater clarity on how we implement these practices and what are potential obstacles. And certainly, Anthony and I having the privilege of not just having led model schools, but now have, have the privilege of working with schools all over the world on this, you learn from where you go to work. And so to take this moment to get a chance to work with, with Bob and build upon the powerful words of, of, of Rick and Becky, their co-authors of this third edition, their ideas continue to live on. Now to think about where are we now and how do we build context to today's time and what have we learned over the last decade to better serve kids and serve educators? That's really the purpose of this book that is a natural byproduct of living what you preach continuous collective learning. I want to dig into the book um, more and more throughout the rest of this hour. Um, I kind of want to start on something you were touching on, Mike. So maybe, Anthony, I could ask this question of you. Um, with PLC at work now being 22 years old, is that right? Uh, yes, since the first book, in, yeah, 22 yeah. years since the first then, book published. And then built on the practices um, that... Rick and Bob were doing leading up to it. Um, how is it still relevant today, or is it still relevant today? Are those those ideas still functioning in the same way they were back then? Well, there are certain things about what we do for young people that are timeless. And one of the things that was really clear, and I think they really resonated, and I like how Mike puts it, he calls it elegantly simple, is that the fundamental purpose of a school is student learning. Learning didn't start in 1998, but schools coming to a, a, a consensus that learning is our fundamental purpose. Uh, having a great basketball team is great. Um, you know, having, uh, you know, a beautiful building is great. But our fund, the reason we exist is that young people develop intellectually and there's evidence of their growth intellectually because of what we do. So that hasn't changed. So a, a technique that really hits the heart of the school's fundamental purpose, it won't go out of style. Collaboration has always been a good idea. Um, being very specific, if learning is what's important, being specific about what you want kids to learn and be able to do. Um, if there's been an area of growth and evolution uh, that has really pushed the PLC process forward, it's, it's been in the area of improving assessment methods for PLC question two. And then improving student support and extension with the RTI work model of PLC's questions three and four. So there are parts of the process that have evolved since 1998, but the framework is the same. We just get better within the framework. And if there's one area that uh, I believe that also has really supported the growth of the process and has made it timeless is the recognition that the bridge between question one, which is what do we want students to know and be able to do, and question two, how do we know if students have learned, common formative assessment, is this vacuum of instruction. So the partnership with Marzano, 
and the Marzano Research and Resource folks to really address, you know, we can determine what we want students to know, but you'll probably get more reliable results if we continue to reflect and put tools in our toolbox in the instructional area. Then we add folks uh, to really uh, uh, modernize and bring up this, this snuff the assessment. And then we hand it off to Mike and his associates. So the process really itself, the framework is timeless. We just want to get better and better within the context of the framework. I think that's the big thing that this revisiting second edition does really well. It's, it brings it up to it, it, it. It's the evidence that we've gathered since 2008 that doesn't change the process, but just enhances the process. Yeah. Dad, two short pieces on that. The, the chapter in revisiting that kind of builds the case research-wise behind PLC at work being being best practice to ensure that kids learn. Um, I, I, I was the one who cumulatively looked at, 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 at the newest research. And it was research quotes that we leaned into the entire PLC associate family to help us uh, uh, update, provide. Um, in the book, we have almost 30 pages of research quotes of just, I mean, they like represent 25 to 30 years of research, all validating this professional learning community approach is the best way to structure a school to, in, to enhance and improve both student and, uh, and adult learning. As professionals, we have an obligation to implement best practice, especially when there's a preponderance of evidence. I think when Rick and Bob wrote the original book in 1998, they were proposing a thesis. This is the best way to structure a school. I think we can say 22 years later, I don't think it's a thesis anymore. I think it's a fact. I, I, I would challenge anyone to find a school improvement process, which is more steeped in, in, in a longitudinal in depth of, 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 of research that the PLC process has. So it's cool to go back 12 years after the last rewrite and 22 years after the original book and say, not only has these practices stood the test of, of time, more and more other independent researchers have said, no, that's that's the right thing to do, right? When you talk about context right, right now, Jesse, when you think about the unprecedented challenges schools have faced this year due to the pandemic, as Anthony and I have worked with schools across the world, the schools that are already functioning as a professional learning community are the ones that have adapted the most quickly. Because instead of facing new challenges and asking individual teachers to somehow figure out how to teach virtually and how to social distance kids and how to keep kids safe and how to, with less instructional time, meet, meet the needs of kids and how do you make up gaps for kids who weren't online for a while. And instead, they already had a culture of collectively learning, sharing best practice, and collectively supporting students. So this pivot to some of that collaboration being done virtually, some of the instruction being done, 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 done virtually, that pivot was, was more effective because we had built the structures of learning collaboration in place. The schools that didn't have that foundation pre-pandemic are really struggling right now because it's hard for them to build capacity of, of, of their faculty to meet the needs of kids in this new environment when they're not used to having systematic ways for that staff to learn together and share best practice. Instead, they're hoping individuals can somehow figure it out and meet the needs of their kids. That model was hard enough to meet kids' needs under a perfect teaching condition, let alone what we face right now. Um, so this question is maybe as much for me as it is for anyone. I've been at Solution Tree for five years now. It'll be five years this summer. And um, I feel like I understand uh, as much as I am going to about PLC at work without being an actual teacher in the classroom. What I don't understand, and I hear this talked about a lot, is what's the difference between PLC at work and PLC, like in general? Um, Solution tree, we call it PLC at work. That's what uh, Rick and Bob came up with. What's the difference? Um, do either Can I, either of you explain it in a way that I'm not getting? I think Anthony answers this beautifully. Anthony? Oh, I think we, we both do, but, uh, you know. No, I, but I, I, I've heard you articulate this far better yeah. than I do. Yeah. And I think well, I do pretty good. It's just yeah. you're really yeah. good at it. Yeah. Well, 
PLC is a process and a framework, PLC at work. And it's a continuous process that people engage in. And I like to describe it like a, 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 an operating system for a computer. It organizes everything that you do. Um, and it's, it's, your, your hardware is useless unless you have an operating system. So the PLC at work process takes everything that you do and it integrates it within the, the, the context of the process. So before Windows, before, app, before the, the Apple operating system, you'd have to code everything you put on the, what had to be, but having a PLC process, the PLC at work process is like that operating system that makes what you do useful. So everything you do functions through the collaborative team and the four questions. So let me give an example. Being engaged in this cycle of inquiry, the four PLC questions, so for those who don't know, we don't want to make assumptions. Uh, teams work together collaboratively and they answer four questions in recurring cycles. Question one is what do we want students to know and be able to do? That is about guaranteed and viable curriculum. Um, uh, some call them power standards. Is getting clear on what we want students to learn. All teams do that. Question two, how do we know if students have learned? That is common formative assessment. Question three, how do we respond when students don't learn? Intervention, how do we respond when students learn? Uh, enrichment. So we all have the goal to question what we want students to know. By gathering evidence, Jesse and I, we, we, you, we work on a team. And we find that from the evidence that we gather through question two, our students' big issue is background vocabulary. Now, what does that mean? Now we can integrate support in building background vocabulary that enhances learning, not as a side issue, but integrated within the mainframe or the operating system of PLC. We might find that students can express themselves orally, but they struggle with expressing themselves in expository writing. So now what can we add? Now we may need to get some training or some support. So the PLC process guides everything that people do. The misunderstanding of the PLC process is the understanding that the collaborative team is PLC. And often some, many call that critical friends. It's a group of professionals who get together and structure time to talk about things that are relevant to them. There is no reliability in the, the impact and in, in, in on student improvement because without a process, the focus can be very random and not targeted to the essential needs of students. So it's not that the non-PLC at work, critical friends, PLT, it goes by a lot of names. It's not that they're bad, but it's the genius of the, as, as Mike said, that what Rick and Bob were able to do was to take research and at Adelaide Stevenson High School, actualize it in a process that had a holistic and deep effect on students. So it's the process that the teams engage in that that's important is we had teaming long before PLC at work. We had collaboration, but it's the genius of the fidelity of the engagement in the process that pulls everything together. And as Mike said, gives us the best opportunity to improve student learning. So please don't make the mistake and assume that just because teachers meet, you've met the criteria of the six characteristics of a real PLC, which you'll find in chapter one of learning by doing. Yeah. To add a piece to that too. So, you know, I, I think a, I think a logical question, Anthony started to flesh this out and it's, well, you guys advocate for the PLC at work process. Well, we are, well, we are a small learning community or we are, we have PLTs or what about other PLC processes? Well, there is no, no doubt that there have been, you know, Rick and Bob openly say they didn't create the research on the first concept of a professional learning community. They added the words at work because it was driven by what they learned as pra practitioners that the act of meeting together doesn't mean more kids are going to learn. So I think an important difference between like professional learning teams or small learning communities, those approaches to collaboration is they view the teacher team as the fundamental unit 
of learning. In the PLC process, we consider the whole school, the whole organization as the PLC. Why? If our mission is to ensure all kids learn in high levels, aren't we going to want to work as an entire faculty, as an entire district towards that end? Don't we all have important contributions? There must be coordination across the system to make that happen. So it's good that uh, in, in a small learning community, we're shifting from individual teachers meeting the needs of their own students to now teachers who teach the same course or grade working together. But guess what? That grade level or department team can't get every child there either. It will take leveraging all of our collective knowledge and skills from special ed staff, admin, classified staff. So the PLC process engages and coordinates the learning across the system. I think that's one very big difference. The other thing, uh, I mean, if I'm going to speak candidly here too, one of the cool things over the last 22 years is the, the popularity of the PLC process has grown, but there's been a two-edged sword to it. Mm-hmm. And that's now because it's so popular, one, people kind of think if two or more people gather in, in, in one place, that's a PLC. Or again, to be candid, you know, there are lots of educational businesses and people out there that they want to jump in and get a piece of the pie if they see a financial benefit. So we see a lot of variations now of, hey, well, we'll have PLC with some new name and it'll be our spin on it. We are not against at all other researchers who are going to add to our collective knowledge and skills. But I think there's a muddying of the waters when people want to basically take what Rick and Bob and Becky created add a little spin, an extra question to the process and all, then try to repackage it as something new and improved. We're not looking here. Our follow-up book here, this is not new and improved. This is digging deeper into a process that's proven to work. And if other people have abilities to add to that deepening knowledge, fantastic. But I, I think it is worrisome at times that, that people do kind of get mixed up on what a true PLC is because there are so many names being sold out there as being a PLC. Absolutely. Can I add one more piece of that, Jesse? Uh, I think this this um, second edition of, of revisiting PLC, or I call it a third edition of the original, is so important because you want to be able to differentiate. And I think some of the early associates, uh, some of the early um, um, uh, mentees of Rick DeFore and Bob Baker and Becky DeFore, what we had in common was a thirst and, and, and a desire to consume the literature and to really educate ourselves. And as Mike said, because PLC has become popular, uh, there's been a lot of pseudo processes that have been. been a, but I, I don't really fault those those capitalists for that. I fault leaders who don't take the time to really do their due diligence and study for themselves because it, one of the things that, that that Becky used to say all the time, when you want to start a new endeavor, she'd make the people say it, learn together first. So before you make your whole district say, we're, we're, we're going to get on the PLC, wouldn't it be smart for you to do due diligence and really go do some research for yourself on the different variations and, and tools of thought on PLC and really narrow down what's going to work best for us and to be an authority on the implementation process? Um, we would have candid conversations as associates um, about the literature, about the books. And I just I want to be candid, as Mike said, don't be intellectually lazy and wait for somebody else to define for you the pathway for your district. And the reason I think this book is so important, that it is like the encyclopedia of PLC at work. It's everything we know. And for some of my millennials who are listening, an encyclopedia was Google in writing before Google uh, is everything you wanted to know about a topic that you could didn't have at your fingertips. We had to actually go to a, a volume of big giant books. And that's what this is. This is the, the this new edition is the all we know and all that's been supported of the PLC at work process. So we can answer those questions, but I want to impress upon leaders, go read, do don't be so easily fooled. Pick up the literature. Discern for yourself. Understand the lingo. Understand the research. And don't wait for the next flashy speaker to push you in a different direction. 
Uh, I'd like to spend some time maybe pulling back the curtain, get a little bit of a sneak preview in a way. So with 22 additional years of research, um, Mike, maybe you could start us out by letting us know what is some of the research showing us? What, what kinds of data out there are we learning from? A few different things here. Um, let me start here. Um, the practices that the PLC process advocates for, they are proven to get better results in, in student learning, student, student achievement. But here's the catch. You have to implement them deeply. You also have to implement the entire process. So what we've learned over time is, is, is what, is what uh, Rick DeFore and Doug Reeves coined PLC light. The idea that we'll dabble in PLCs. You don't get to reap the benefits of your collaboration unless there's a deep level of implementation on the practices that we're tied about. Let's go on that tangent. Something else we've gained over the last 20 years, ours, greater clarity on what are the elements of the PLC work process that we are tight about, meaning non-discretionary, non-negotiable, they are essential to the process. If you want to improve student learning, here are the things your collaborative time must focus on. It's not the only things you can talk about, but if you disregard these topics, then you won't get the results that you're looking for. And what are, are those things that we're tight about? Working in collaborative teams, getting clear on what we all on what we want all kids to learn, course by course, subject by subject, as Marzana would say, creating a guaranteed and Bible curriculum, using common assessments in a formative way as the foundation of our assessment processes. We use other forms of assessment too, but the lifeblood of in real time knowing how kids are, are, are doing is regularly collecting targeted information tied to essential curriculum. Using those, those assessments, not just in a formative way, but in a common way where we use it to reflect on our practices. We assess not just to assess kids. We assess kids as evidence of are our practices working? And then finally, systematically responding when kids don't learn. We have greater clarity on not just what those things are, but how we implement them. Two more things quickly, and I want Anthony to, to jump in. As a profession generally, we have much more clarity now on what systems of interventions look like that are effective. So we go deeper into those pieces within this book. And then finally, you know, it, in the end, um, this won't happen by accident. There's no doubt that not only is the, is the PLC process proven to work, it's common sense. Very few educators resist the concept of we'll get better results if we work together. We'll get better results if we have clarity on what we want kids to learn. And that's a doable number of things. We'll have uh, that state assessment data. If you wait for that to measure student learning, it's too late. We should probably know along the way, right? Giving kids extra help is a good thing. No one argues that, but it's hard to implement. And why? Because the idea of collaboration sounds good in theory. Hey, let's be a team. But once you start to do the work, there's going to be disagreements. As Anthony says, adult drama. And so the point becomes this then, you better have effective leadership to pull this off. Because if effective leadership isn't present, just hoping that good intentions and hardworking people will somehow figure this all out is not likely. That leads to the incredible importance of having a healthy school culture. And that's where Anthony is, I feel the global expert on that topic at this time in our generation in, in, in education and why he was a co, why I'm so happy as a co-author of this book to bring in his research and his approach to that. Anthony, do you wanna flesh that out a little bit more? Absolutely. Um, we have to credit uh, Rick, Bob and Becky for laying the intellectual foundation, the logical foundation of the PLC process. They were trying to make the case for it in the first two books. They were trying to give examples, um, proposed structures, but we have the advantage since 2008 of the actual practical implementation and lessons learned now that we have the intellectual understanding and application. So to go back to Mike's, why, why are so many schools at PLC light? If it's crystal clear with evidence, there are exemplars. There are all kinds of, of structures and examples that people could follow. 
why would so many come to, to, to PLC institutes and get training, but then go back and engage in PLC light? It just doesn't match. Kind of what Pfeffer and Sutton called the, the knowing doing gap to know better, but then not do better. So I had the very tough task of almost totally revamping the, the chapter on culture because the original work was more theoretical and it was mainly rooted in the business community. A lot of Peter Senge, a lot of the, the authors around the Harvard Business Review type uh, research, but I've had the advantage since 2008 to really study deeply school culture, not just organization, but schools. Why are schools unique? Why are they different than a business or a, a government entity? So we really uh, unpack a lot of that in the chapter on culture. And one of the areas that uh, dive into that's very different than the first two editions is the impact of public paradigm and public policy like No Child Left Behind, like ESSA, like test-driven accountability? How have these things affected teacher focus? How could they distract from a team's focus solely on learning when you're, you're concerned about losing governance, when principals don't develop relationships because they're afraid of losing their job because of the anxiety of test scores and the inequity that that's caused? And then I, I, I spent a lot of time um, addressing the sociological aspect of school interaction. What does is, what is the behavioral science tell us about how humans interact? I think we'd all agree that putting four people in a room together doesn't mean they're going to collaborate. It, they have the potential to, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee. What are the right conditions? What are the type of organizational cultures we have to surround teachers with to put them in the best position to do the work? And finally, there was quite a bit of um, um, uh, additional information on leadership's role in developing school culture, heavily focusing on the work that Dr. Cruz and I did with the Time for Change, um, really producing a framework that if you really want people to take advantage of these practices and you've invested in the structures and you've given them the resources, how do you as a leader build consensus? How do you connect with the human being? So the first couple editions really addressed the theoretical and, and research-based foundation, examples and suggestions and structures. But this book really goes into the lessons learned, particularly around the human condition and the human's reaction to its environment and how do we now motivate people to engage because we don't always do what we know. And to simply focus on the intellectual engagement of people and not address the emotional, not to address the relationship component, not to address the power structure, is to ignore the most important entity in every organization, which is the human being. So I think that was my big, I spent most of my time uh, in this revision on that portion. And I hope that people find that it strengthens um, our encyclopedia of PLC at work knowledge. If you go to solutiontree.com the, and the drop down menu, the, the navigation bar, the first one says our solutions. And there you'll see PLC at work, but you'll also see RTI at work, which is an offshoot of PLC at work. It's work that, that came out of the work of PLC at work. Yeah. Um, you'll also see assessment center, which is the same thing. And you'll also see transforming school culture. And um, I would really encourage people to go there. You can see all the books, events, uh, whether that's virtual workshops or once we get back to having in-person events when that's safe, um, PD services, so how you can bring someone into your school virtually or on-site to help you learn more. But um, on the Transforming School Culture page and on the RTI page, there's a white paper there on um, Transforming School Culture called The War Paradigms in a Modern School. And uh, Anthony, I'm, I'm kind of leading you based on Brian Butler's comment in the Facebook uh, chat here in the comments. Good he old said, Brian. He said he was afraid you were being modest and he didn't want me to let you get away with not talking about the idea of resistors, which you mentioned earlier. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that idea of resistors. And I know there are three other personality types. That you Absolutely. Well, just 
I want people to recognize that resistance is a behavior and all behavior is motivated. I think we'd all agree that every teacher I've ever met came to our profession with good intentions. They wanted to serve kids. I've never met a teacher, no matter how bad, who was upset because kids advanced. That That's our real, that's our real salary. That's our real uh, currency that we get. So a question I want people to consider is not simply pinpointing the resistance, but what's driving the resistance. So the transforming school culture framework is just a, it's just a conceptual framework for self-reflection and for planning. I never designed it to be a scarlet letter that a person would wear, oh my God, I'm a fundamentalist. Mike is a believer, he's better than me. I think under certain circumstances, we could, we could visit all of the, uh, the, the characters in that framework. We could. So I want people to really look at if the PLC at work process is a good process, and it is, why are people resistant? Why are they not engaged? If we want teachers to take responsibility for students who are not learning, shouldn't leaders take responsibilities for teachers who are not progressing? Shouldn't superintendents take responsibility for principals who are not developing? All of us have a transformational role. Teachers just have to be directly with kids. But what's the culpability of the adult? And that's why in the Transforming School Culture book, chapter seven, I believe is the most important which is about what do good leaders do to build consensus? And that's where the Time for Change book came from. It was an extension of chapter seven. So I don't want people to get hung up on resistance as an unpleasant behavior. I want them to really concentrate on what are the systemic and social conditions that caused a person to behave that way? And what can we do to try to fix it? A doctor is not known for condemning his or her patients. They're known as a good doctor for diagnosing what causes that patient's illness and being able to respond and fix it. The same way a good teacher who helps a kid do better is considered a good teacher. So I appreciate Brian's comment, but I think that sometimes I don't want anybody to misunderstand that my work is like a Myers-Briggs personality assessment. It's, it's a, it's, it's, my observation on how people respond under different conditions and how it can disrupt the development of school. A great leader would look at that, use it as a guide, a guideline to figure out how do I build consensus? If we believe all kids can learn then we have to believe all teachers can grow and learn. And uh, Mike, I also, um, I don't, I glossed over it a bit, but I was wondering if you could um, explain how, um, over the course of these 22 years, RTI at work is a new thing that, that came out of PLC at work. Can you explain how that came to be, the origins of it? Yeah, yeah, and, 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 and certainly. I don't want to make it sound like we created RTI because we certainly did not. Um, the research base of how a school would systematically and effectively respond when kids don't learn has grown significantly over the last 25 to 30 years, both in behavior and in academic supports. Before RTI was a known term, at Stevenson High School, the, the mothership of the PLC process, Rick and the faculty created something called a pyramid of interventions, leveled support based upon a kid's needs where they became uh, 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 increasingly more intensive, more directive as students showed that level of need. So the idea of, of having a system in place to give kids extra help the help is embedded in the school day where kids can, can get that help. You're leveraging more than just classroom teachers, and you're meeting both behavior and academic needs. Schools were starting to, to do, and certainly Stevenson High School was doing before this name multi-tiered system of support started. When I was an elementary school principal and learned about the PLC process, though I read the early books, and as Anthony said, in many of those books, like uh, Whatever It Takes, the, a follow-up book to the original book that focused more on the intervention and extension part, many of the things that Rick and Becky and Bob did was they provided examples from schools. Here's an elementary school and how they do it. Here's a middle school and how they do it, which is very, very helpful. 
But at some point, we wanted to summarize, well, what would be the guiding principles and the key elements? Um, and as myself and my dear co-author, Awesome Buffum, realized, I honestly don't think you can leverage the power of the research of RTI, MTSS, unless you function as a professional learning community. If you haven't built a collaborative culture, if you aren't clear on what you want kids to learn, and if you aren't regularly and consistently gathering evidence of student learning and of practice, it's really hard in your, sub in your subsequent tiers of support to provide targeted and collaborative help. Because, many, because RTI became a, a federal mandate since 2004, many schools are starting to implement RTI practices, and they saw it kind of as appendage to their regular core, core program and not a, a, a natural extension of what we're doing collaboratively for kids to learn in the first place and still had silos of regular ed and special ed and EL and non-EL and, and not a school-wide collaborative effort. So our RTI at work approach, we just took the term RTI, that research base, and put together the that and entitled the at work part to, to capture the concept of our approach to RTI is built upon a PLC at work foundation. That it's not something, you know, in addition to. Instead, our approach is if you already function as a professional learning community, when it comes to critical questions three and four, how do you respond when kids don't learn and how do we respond when when kids do, let's dig deeper into the research. What would those responses look like? What would be the structures? What would be the guiding principles? What would be that would get you better results? So if you already function as a PLC school, it's going to help you answer those questions better. For schools and districts just trying to implement RTI and PLCs and not doing it successfully, wanting to give them a pathway. The potentially your problem is not your intervention system. The problem is what you're doing all day in the first place where we still have teachers work in isolation. We're still worried more about coverage of curriculum and not prioritizing what's most important for kids to learn. We don't have ongoing assessment practices. And so it's really a what you're doing all day problem, not an intervention problem. And how can we lead you to build that PLC foundation that would help you better leverage and utilize the proven practices that RTI and MTS have to offer when it comes to intervention and extension. That's what our work, Austin Buffum and I, that's what we've tried to write about. But again, we give all credit to, this is built upon the PLC work process. It's all, that's the foundation. And then we're just trying to branch into a deeper dive in the research and practice of the intervention and extension piece. And I'd like to, to kind of uh, validate and really affirm what, what Mike said and about he and his, his colleagues and their contribution to extending this work. Uh, Question three is how do we respond when kids don't learn? And I think people have really been stuck. Uh, Mike, I think you'd agree with me. A lot of principals, when it gets to question three, the de facto interpretation is how do you respond when your kids don't learn? Yep. Without a system that really addresses the best way to serve students and support and do it collectively, we, I've seen, I know you've seen, Mike, the process really break down at question three when a teacher has to believe that when I get the evidence that some students have not succeeded, it all falls back on my shoulder. And that can be depressing. Can be. And I think what Mike and his colleagues have done is given hope that to really, to, to, to really focus and to, to support the we, because all the, the pronoun and all the questions is we, it's not how do I respond, it's how do we. And I really would like administrators who are listening to really read that chapter in this book, because Mike uh, does a really brilliant job building on the original chapter to really get into the systemic response. I think that's a big tipping point between PLC light and PLC right. Yeah. Yeah. If I can go on one more tangent here, this is larger to the, in, in the entire book. Jess, when you ask us what's different to in this edition, it's this. We say in the PLC process that, that the first big idea is a focus on learning, that every policy, practice, and procedure in our school is going to be evaluated through this lens. Will this help more kids learn? So we're going to commit to practices proven to work. Now, my point is this, though. Equally important, you've got to discontinue practices that aren't working. 
We have seen schools and districts start to implement the PLC process and start to do the right work for about an hour a week during PLC time. Then the whole rest of the week and the rest of the year, they're going to run things the way they always have. And we hold on to some traditional practices that don't work, have never worked. And they're actually counterproductive to student learning. Let me give a couple of examples. One, archaic grading practices that, 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 that punish kids academically for behavior that don't allow kids to be reassessed or to turn in work late because kids are going to make mistakes. We learn from mistakes. But then if you have kids who, who won't, be a, won't, won't have a chance to reassess, why would they care about coming in and getting the extra help, right? We have grading practices that compare and rank and sort kids instead of compare kids to learn the standard. And, and, and how about when it comes to interventions, how about traditional special ed practices that were tra tra traditional special ed started, it was really a civil rights law. It came out of the civil rights era when it comes to who had been denied access to even attend public school, right? That solution, a noble outcome, now we've turned into how do we systematically give kids help in learning? If you look at most schools, and I ask most schools this question, are your special ed kids growing in leaps and bounds? What evidence do you have that extra help is helping them close their gap, be redesignated, and they're excelling in grade level essential curriculum? That's the purpose of it, right? To close a gap and to redesignate kids. In most schools and districts, they can't say that that's happening. So we're gonna hold on to those practices? Or are we going to rethink what we're doing? So we try to get clear in, in our new edition too, not only what we're tight about, what we need to do, but we get very clear on here are the practices you have to start to give up because you cannot embrace the right work as you hold on to outdated practices that counteract every good thing that you're doing because you don't want to address some kind of sacred cows that we're unwilling to touch. So, uh, Mike, we had a, a question from the Facebook comments that's, uh, I think it's right along the same lines that you're talking about. So this comes from Paula Maker. I'll just read it to you. Mike often reminds us that Rick used to say that this work wasn't meant to be put on a museum shelf. Is there something that we've learned about that, that is less essential to the process 22 years later? So what you were just talking about is giving up on archaic practices is there anything from the PLC at work process that we found this is less essential and we can focus on it less? Hey, Paula, that's a really good question. I'm not surprised because Paula, you're brilliant. So I'm not surprised one. not to ask a question. You'd ask a challenging question. Um, let me let me share one thing right off the bat, which I wouldn't say is a give up thing, but something that 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 changes the way we approach the right work. If you look at the early work, when the question was, how long would it take to develop a highly effective PLC? If you looked at the research and then looked at the time that it took Stevenson to get there, the general answer was three to five years. Michael Fullen's work kind of leaned that way, three to five years of, 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 of focused effort and effective leadership to start to reap the benefits in a substantial way. The research has changed now. And, and what we say is this, if you look at it, the essential elements that we're tied about, we can start to implement in one year. And you can start to see some significant increases in student learning within the first year. So we've kind of shifted away from, instead of seeing as a three to five year plan to start to get there, these essential elements, kids need it now. They can't wait for you to figure this out. And with effective leadership and a, and a real strong focus, we're not trying to intervene on everything, collaborate on every standard, do common assessments on everything, but a limited focus on some high leverage areas of your kids' needs right now, we can start to make a significant difference more quickly. And we talk about that in, in the book, timeline-wise, we've kind of moved away from the three to five years to, to a more uh, immediate practice, short-term short wins to build momentum and to see progress quickly. I have two questions that I want to get to, and we have five minutes. So we'll maybe have to, to break. This is the speed round, ready? Speed round. Yeah. So, um, and this is a short question. How does PLC at work transform a school or a district? What goal are they looking to reach? It's about the, the connection 
of all the gifts and talents in the school and moving it from isolation so that that every student can benefit from all the gifts and talents of the educators in that environment by putting them in a healthy culture, giving them time and resources and a structure and direction to bring the best out of them, to focus their instruction, to accelerate their assessment practices and using that as those assessment results to learn from each other and to provide with all the gifts and talents of the faculty targeted support for student and targeted uh, opportunities for enrichment. So it really is about the increase of the capacity of the collectiveness of the faculty. That's why John Hattie, for those who are familiar with him, found that the number one impact on student achievement was collective teacher efficacy. And efficacy is simply defined as the ability to produce a desired effect. When that's done collectively, the best research we've ever collected said that when the focus is collective and it's on an impact that kids do better. So it's taking things that many people might have done well in isolation or struggled with in isolation and harnessing the power of we, and not just in a congenial sense, but in doing the right work, because the root word of collaborate is labor. It's co-labor. We've always labored individually. So by identifying the right labor, and doing that labor together, how can you not have a good school? I would take that question, Jesse, and to the PLC associates that are, that are listening right now, they're making comments, I'll toss them a question. If you truly worked at a school that was a high-performing PLC, if you're part of a high-performing team, once you experience that, would you ever go back? Because if you never experienced it, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know the power of how it transformed, not just how you serve kids, but the support and connectedness, as Anthony said, that you feel as an educator, right? But when you reach a point where you are truly on a high-performing team within an effective PLC process across your, your entire school, once you experience that, teachers are going to say, how did I ever make it all those years when I in my own room felt the need to save the world on my own? every day. That's how it transform you. But you got to experience the benefits to truly have you say, we would do this if the district made us or not. If the principal changed tomorrow, we'll fight to keep this because it's made such a difference for our students and for us, us as, us as educators. Okay. Second question, Jesse. Could you tell me a little bit about model PLCs and ideally a little thing, a little bit about all things PLC.info? Mike, that's your question. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, 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 that's, that's my strike zone. That, that, that's my okay. middle name, Mike Model PLC Meadows. Yeah, yeah, you know, Rick, Rick, Rick tapped Anthony to kind of lead different things based upon strengths. And one of mine is, is I'm, a, I'm a technical guy. So the PLC model part, Anthony is an incredible research guy. So the thinking of here, Anthony does, the nuts and bolts, I do, I do more of. With that in mind, um, I think the strength of the PLC process is not just we can point to the research in our profession that it works. Can you point to actually schools doing it and getting better results? One thing that we're proud of is we can point to not just Stevenson High School now. We have, if you go to the allthingsplc.info website and, and click on the link evidence of effectiveness, we have hundreds of model schools now across the world. To be a model school, you have to one, prove that you are doing all the things we're tied about in the PLC process and doing them well. And two, you have at least three years of significant improvement in student achievement based upon those practices. So you're not a one hit wonder. You are getting better results. You've replicated again, you've replicated it again, and it's due to you doing these practices well. We have large schools, small schools, elementary, middle, high school districts, large districts, small districts. We have schools that are school-wide Title I and schools that are primarily affluent, mostly English language learners, mostly English only. Schools that stretch from Australia to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. So if someone says, but would it work at my school? We literally have almost, I mean, we have charter schools, private schools, public schools. We have schools that are behind prison bars. And the cool thing about this is not only does that All Things PLC website help validate, it works. Look, here's real life schools doing it but it gives you resources. 
So if we're struggling, like, man, we're a really small school. Most of our teachers are singleton staff, like only one teacher teaches each grade or one teacher teaches each course. So we want to collaborate, but how do we form teams? Well, you certainly could read chapter three and learning by doing, we give you examples, but better yet, why don't you contact a model school that's almost all singleton teachers? Why don't you contact a model district where almost every teacher is a singleton? Because we have that. And Every model school agreed to do it, not just because it validated to them they were on the right track on this PLC journey, but equally important, they want to share what they've learned. The same way Stevenson didn't take what they learned, keep it internally and say, we're going to keep it secret so we could be the best high school. No, they openly shared it. They have had educators come for the last 25 years constantly to that school to what? To learn what they've learned, to share what they've learned and to learn from others. Well, now we have hundreds and hundreds of schools that are willing to open their doors. Model districts from, again, a district of one school to a district of 100, 120 schools where they've coordinated so that these practices are happening for every school. That's a, that larger district, Pasadena ISD, I praise you, outside of Houston, Texas. The entire district has embedded these practices at every single one of their schools in this large urban district. Phenomenal. That's what that resource is. Allthingsplc.info. And one last uh, thing I like to encourage people, anybody that may be reluctant to apply because you think maybe you might not be accepted, one of the cool features is that you'll be given feedback, though you might not have reached the criteria right now. Uh, These are some suggestions uh, to improve and then resubmit. So it, it's a formative process and you get intervention. So we're living the PLC process, even in trying to support schools uh, to become model PLCs. So don't be shy. You may be surprised. Fill out the application. And if you're not quite there, you'll get some useful feedback and then just follow the advice and reapply. That's great. And schools that are already model schools, get this, they got to reapply every year with, with updated data. Why? Because just because you did last year, it's continuous improvement, right? unless you continue to improve, you're not truly a PLC because that's what it's about, continuous improvement. Anthony, I want to add to that, not just feedback, but feedback from a PLC at work expert. Uh, one of the Solution Tree's authors, one of our practitioners, um, somebody who's lived through this process will tell you what you're doing and how you can improve on it. Exactly. Uh, so we're, we're out of time. Uh, Mike and Anthony, how can people see more of you Um, I'm thinking about the book on April 4th. I'm thinking about PLC at work live institutes in the summer. Um, Where, where will people get to see more of you? Um, Global PD. You can stream us um, through recorded video. You always have access to the books. Um, You can invite one of us to your school or district. We, we both have associates. I have associates in transforming school culture. Mike has associates, people who work under his tutelage and are certified to deliver his his work with RTI at work. So Solution Tree, just go to solutiontree.com and you have every avenue you can think yeah. of. And Jesse mentioned the, the, the our summer institutes, the, this PLC Live approach. I am so grateful to Solution Tree, to Jeff Jones, the, the CEO. During this pandemic, knowing that it's more important than ever that we commit to these best practices and they want schools to be able to also keep people safe. They've really changed the structure of our of our of our PME, of our PLC summer institutes, where you have the ability to actually stream the event live into your own school. So think about the cost of, of travel, the safety of travel, knowing again we're not quite at herd immunity yet when, when, when it comes to this pandemic, the ability to bring this live into your school. Uh, pretty darn cool stuff. And so if you want more information on that, go to the Solution Tree website, but we're doing about 10 different events throughout June, July, and August. Um, They're in different time zones. They start at different times, kind of meet people's needs. And I'm I'm very excited about that because the, the, the learning that we provide at those events, I certainly know that, you know, Anthony said, one institute transformed him personally and me attending a, a one day training on PLCs transform me. So we we know a day of learning can make a big a big difference on getting the process started or reinvigorating the process. So I am very excited about that coming up. 
And can I just give one more parting shot? Um, this book that's coming out, the third iteration of the original PLC work. Um, if you're really serious about the PLC at work process, you have to have this um, to be able to defend what you're doing, to expand what you're doing. I, I'd like consider it like your union card. Uh, we won't let you on a construction site without your union card. So to really know the evidence, the process has grown. And Mike and I and Bob believe this is the definitive work on the PLC at work process, the most updated of all the updated versions. And anybody that really is a serious PLC at work fan and practitioner, you have to get this book. Certainly, Anthony and I would, uh, we've certainly tried to give credit where credit is due, Rick, with Rick, Becky, and Bob, and this particular book, our second our second edition, we are blessed that one of the original architects is still here to help lead this process. Can't say enough about Dr. Bob Aker. He is Absolutely. brilliant. He certainly led the process in, in this rewrite. Um, Anthony and I have tried to add a little bit of our expertise in particular areas, but, but he is, he, he's, he's the original architect of it and his continued both uh, study as well as his, continued rare, but I think the mark of a genius is someone who who can make the complicated simple. Bob's a genius. He's extremely talented at taking complicated research and talking about in very simple and clear and doable ways. And he continues that rare ability in this book. A living legend. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. The book is Revisiting PLC at Work, second edition from SolutionTree.com or wherever you get your books. Thank you, everyone, for joining us tonight. I hope to see you again. Have a good one. Thanks, Jesse. Have a good one. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks everybody, Anthony. for joining us. Thank you for listening to Inside the Treehouse today. If you have an author or a topic to suggest for a future podcast, reach out to me directly at jeff.jones at solutiontree.com. Thank you for listening, and thank you for all that you do.